0: Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Mazurv. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Mazurv. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. We decided this week to take
1: another look at the intelligence picture on North Korea. Longtime Asia watcher Robert Manning repeated what many have said over the years, North Korea is basically a black
2: box. Well, yeah, as you say, I've been following it for more than three decades, in and out of government. And I have to say, it's probably the hardest of hard targets because there's no other country that's that insular, that is so hermetically sealed.
1: That's the Atlantic Council's senior fellow, Robert Manning. We'll have more on the challenges of spying on North Korea later in the show. But meanwhile, Gene Meserve has this fascinating segment on startling developments in China's nuclear missiles.
0: That's right, Jeff. This spring, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, Admiral Charles Richard, raised the alarm in front of a congressional committee about a sudden and alarming increase in China's nuclear capabilities.
3: To me, they are at some kind of an inflection point and are rapidly expanding their strategic capabilities. This has happened within the last year. They
1: are well ahead of the pace to double their stockpile by the end of the decade. And I further submit
3: that the size of a nation's weapons stockpile by itself is a very crude measure of what they can do with that capability.
0: In open session, Admiral Richard couldn't be specific about the basis for his concern. But now, Commercially available satellite photos have revealed at least some of the evidence. Two massive construction projects. We spoke to Hans Christensen, director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists, about what his team found.
3: Construction of what we think are um, huge fields of missile silos uh, in the central part, northern part of central China. Uh, This is a completely new thing on this scale that China is now working on. And uh, there's been no official confirmation from China, of course, what this is, but uh, the satellite photos are pretty clear.
0: This is the second missile field that's been discovered recently. Am I correct?
3: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, About a month ago, another research team uh, discovered another one, about 300, 400 uh, kilometers or I don't know how many miles, but to, to the southeast. So this is, this is a huge project. And both of these sites have started construction relatively recently. I mean, the first one that was discovered, again, construction in uh, February uh, 2000. This new site we discovered didn't start construction until March this year. So we're just a few months into it. How many
0: silos are we talking about between the two of them?
3: Between these two, we're talking about 230.
0: What does that represent in terms of China's nuclear capability?
3: If they fill all of them with missiles, it would represent more nuclear warheads than China currently has in its stockpile. Um, another way to, you know, describe it is that the number of silos that China uh, appears to be constructing right now exceeds the number of missile silos that Russia is operating.
0: Can we presume that U.S. intelligence agencies are well aware
3: of this? Oh, yes. Um, I mean, they've been talking about um, a dramatic increase in Chinese nuclear arson, uh, Chinese nuclear arsenal for several years. Um, and I think the first time we heard in public was about 2019. They started speaking about at least doubling uh, the stockpile. Earlier this year, in the beginning of the year, we heard US strategic commander, uh, Admiral uh, Richard, uh, mentioning at least the doubling, if if not a tripling or quadrupling (laughs) he talked about. So these are significant developments for China, uh, both in terms of sheer size of it, but also in terms of its own history, its nuclear weapons history. Uh, We haven't seen the Chinese do anything like this on this scale ever before.
0: You said um, they appear to be missile silos.
3: So how sure are you? I'm pretty sure, To the, as, sh- as sure as we can be by watching these things uh, from above. They're very clear tell signs. I mean, we're not talking about something that looks like or so. Uh, we're seeing st- construction of this, both in these sites we're looking at. Here, there are very clear tell signs for what a silo look like, looks like. Um, but we're also seeing construction of similar silos um, in a training area in the northeastern part of China. We've been monitor- monitoring construction of those. And there we have also seen um, the construction, the uh, the camouflage that they put over these while they construct them. Uh, we've also seen that removed. We've seen finalization of the silos, or some of them. And we're now even seeing what's beginning to look like them training or practicing loading missiles.
0: Some people have suggested that these could be decoys, that perhaps they're never going to be filled with missiles. What do you think of
3: that theory? Well, so um, that was a hypothesis that that was presented after we saw the first first sight. And of course, I think what people were trying to make sense of was why China was doing something that was so fundamentally different than what they've done before. And the Chinese in the past have always been very good at sort of, you know, hiding what they're doing or confusing what they're doing, uh, these types of things. So it's sort of a natural thought that maybe they're just building a lot of silos and maybe they're only going to fill 20, 30 or 50 or whatever of them with missiles. And that would create a big barrier for another nuclear armed state if they wanted to knock out China's missile force. So it made sense uh, to think like that. Um, But when we discovered the second site, um, I I became more convinced that this is full-scale deployment uh, plan. Uh, And the reason is that if you wanna do a shell game, you build 120 silos, you fill 30, 40, 50 of them with missiles, there's your shell, shell game. You don't need to build a second site as well and also have a shell game there. So it, it makes less sense to me uh, after we found the second. That's not to say that, that they're not surprises here. There are lots of unknowns uh, in the Chinese plans. And so we'll see what happens down the line. I mean, I true. we'll get some more specific statements from U.S. officials in terms of what they think the Chinese are up for gradually over the next couple of years. This is going to take some time for these silos to be completed, of course. So, you know, toward the mid of the century or latter part of mid of the, the decade here and the latter part of the decade, I suspect we'll have more clarity about it. Do
0: you have any idea what kind of missiles they're going to put in these silos?
3: Uh, No, because, I mean, not specifically because the Chinese don't say anything about this.
0: But there's nothing about the particular configuration of these silos
3: that would give you a tip in that regard? There is. um, The silos appear to be smaller than the silos they have built for their old liquid fuel intercontinental ballistic missile. They currently have though about 20 of those silos. They also have a couple of exercise training silos. So there's been plenty of opportunity to observe them. Those silos seem bigger than these ones. And we've heard a statement from the U.S. Department of Defense also saying uh, that they imagine what's going on here is that China is trying to develop some kind of concept for deployment of its solid fuel missiles. What's the advantage of a solid fuel missile? The major advantage is that you can fire it out of the silo much faster. With a liquid fuel missile, you first have to fuel the missile, and that can take several hours.
0: Would that indicate to you that China is doing this for defensive or offensive reasons?
3: The way the Chinese have put it is that they have a minimum deterrent, they have a no few, no first use policy, they don't want to start a nuclear war and all this type of stuff. However, of course, any missile, even the missiles they currently have, can be used first. if you press the button you know but the question is is china building a strategy where they're now going to threaten first strike with nuclear weapons sort of a surprise first strike and no i don't think so you can easily have a posture of nuclear forces that relies on a secure retaliatory capability with this system that the chinese are building now if you want to be a little sort of cynical you could sort of say well, the Chinese are, in fact, only doing what the United States and the Russians have been doing for decades, you know, putting a few missiles into silos so they have a greater chance of surviving. Uh, so that, maybe that's part of the explanation.
0: A couple of questions, um, additional questions about the missiles. How many warheads do you think might be on these missiles?
3: Well, so far, the overwhelming number of missiles in the Chinese arsenal have been equipped for single warhead. There's Only one version of a missile, a small number of them, that has MIRV, multiple warheads, so far. They're called MIRV because they're a technology where you can aim one missile with many warheads against several targets. And they put that capability on on one system. But now they're building a new version of a sort of a heavy ICBM that is thought to be capable of launching multiple warheads. Are all these silos intended for that missile? Would some of them also be filled with single warhead uh, missiles? We don't know. There's no way of knowing that yet.
0: What are the range of these missiles? And given where these silo fields appear to be created, should it give us even more concern in the U.S. about the possibility of their reaching the continental U.S.?
3: Uh, No, China already has the capability to reach all parts of the United States with its long range missiles. What's interesting about the location of these sites though, is that they're further inland China than any other ICBM deployment site. That might indicate that what the Chinese are partly trying to do here is to make sure that these silos are away from where conventional, uh, even nuclear cruise missiles can reach them. There is a concern among some Chinese officials and scholars that the United States could disarm or try to disarm the Chinese retaliatory capability with conventional forces, so not having to cross the nuclear threshold. Whether that's the case or not, I don't know, but but this is an interesting location for for these uh, missile fields.
0: Is this part of the muscle flex that China seems to be engaged in militarily, do you think?
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's part of China's image that the new leadership or the current leadership wants to portray. I mean, it's quite clearly stated a very ambitious military modernization program that by the middle of the 30s, 40s, certainly the the middle of the century, China will be a full-fledged military power uh, on the level of the United States and Russia. And so There's no way that this is happening as part of their routine modernization. Uh, You could say this is a new phase in China's nuclear history. What should the U.S. do about it? Well, um, that's the big unknown, uh, because if you look at the debate where it's going, each person with a stake in this debate, if you could say that, is arguing this as an example of why they should do what they have wanted all the time. So people who want more nukes, they're saying, well, the United States could, should get more nukes. Uh, people who want more arms control say, well, the United States should focus more on arms control. People who want more money for the defense budget, they say, well, we should get more money. So it's kind of like, you know, everybody's using this to, to, to play up their own set of arguments. I think it would be a, a tragic if the United States uses this to increase its own nuclear forces. The fact of the matter is that China has always had significantly less nuclear weapons than the United States. Even with this modernization, they're not going to reach parity. But we used to deter China with many more nuclear weapons than we have to do. For decades. That obviously didn't persuade China not to do this. And so it's hard to see what more we're going to get if we add nuclear weapons to our arsenal. I think... There are two elements to this. One, of course, is a military that has to, military element that has to consider what would happen in the worst-case scenario. And then, please, Mr. President, please identify what the worst-case scenario is. Because if you leave it to nuclear warfighters to come up with what is the worst-case scenario, there's no end to what requirements can come out of this. So it's about what we want to accomplish. And I think the key issue here is we want to be able to deter China from using nuclear weapons. Other elements of our military strategies that we want to deter China from attacking Taiwan or other allies in the region, that is mainly a conventional issue. But then there's the bigger issue, which is like, how do we want to influence China uh, so it moves in a direction that is our in our interest and the interest of our allies in the region uh, in the future? And there's no way, I think, that ramping up the nuclear saber rattling from our side will persuade the Chinese leadership to be more gentle or, or reduce, or whatever the, the outcome is. So I think it's very important that the United States comes up with sort of what you could call a grand strategy that has deterrence elements in it and reassurance elements for allies, but it also tries to come up with engagement, direct engagement with the Chinese and try to shape their perceptions about what they need in the future. And let me just give one example. During the Trump administration, of course, they pushed hard for China to come into big nuclear arms control agreements. Um, and of course they failed because they they ran it like a pressure show and a shaming show instead of trying to persuade the Chinese. But the United States, of course, have, has to come up with what it is willing to offer China in return or limits on its nuclear forces if that's the objective.
0: So are you saying we have to put our nuclear forces on the table and be willing to bargain them down?
3: Yes, there's no way to accept to, to imagine that the Chinese will you know accept limitations on its nuclear forces or its general military forces unless the United States is also willing to offer something. But I also want to say this is not only about the United States. China's military planning is also about India. It's also about Russia. So this is a bigger issue for for China than just about the United States.
0: There's been a lot of talk about trying to uh, draw China more deeply into arms control talks, thus far unsuccessfully. Are you suggesting there is a way, there is a possibility of doing this, and not just with the
3: U.S., but a multilateral effort? Not here and now. I don't think the Chinese are interested. And they've had a long term policy that is when you, meaning the United States and Russia, come down to our level, then we'll start talking. And so I I think there's no way they're going to limit their nuclear forces just because we don't like them uh, or threaten them or something. The way to get to this, however, uh, I think is through other steps that more have to do sort of with softer kind of arms control. You can imagine a series of efforts to try to engage the Chinese on. Sort of operational behavior, on confidence building measures, on on general transparency in terms of uh, increasing what you tell other countries that your long-term plans are and things like that. Start building up from that level. But as far as I hear, China is not interested in sort of hard arms control in terms of numerical limits on their nuclear forces.
0: It's interesting to me that they're doing this in such an open way, building these missile fields that can easily be detected by satellite. They have other options, correct? If they wanted to conceal their nuclear capability, they could do that to some degree, correct?
3: Yes, um, and that's what they've done in the past. For example, their first silos, they were hidden, and they are hidden in the mountains, so to speak. I mean, we know where they are. But they're hidden in the mountains. They even produce, They even build uh, decoys. And if you visit them, you can go and see how they're camouflaged with, with you know, trees and, and other things. Uh, they're very hard to detect unless you have good capabilities. And then their more recent modernization of their long-range force has been about mobile ICBM launchers. That's another way of concealing the force because in a crisis, those mobile launchers would disperse into the environment and hide. They may be in a, in a tunnel somewhere, they may be hiding under trees or whatever, um, but that's another way of, of hiding your force. You're right, this is very overt. This is in your face. Um, so you could argue perhaps the Chinese want to be seen. You know, This is maybe a signal they're sending or maybe they've just said it doesn't matter when we build this number there's no way that the united states or the russians or the, certainly the 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 indians can knock it out this brings us a degree of surety about our ability to launch in retaliation to an attack so good luck guys you can do whatever you want to you know we're safe now
0: what is the quality of us intelligence about Chinese nuclear capabilities?
3: That's interesting. It seems to be pretty good, you know, because we always hear this thing that the Chinese are behind this big secrecy wall and, you know, the great wall of secrecy, I think the Trump administration called it, and these types of things. And sure, they don't say much or they like to show off once in a while, you know, some videos and these things. But the US have been pretty good in terms of sort of detecting new developments uh, that are coming. We, as little sort of NGO spy agencies, if you if you want to call us that, Um, we sort of monitor with satellite photos and what we pick up in reports from this and that and try to make sense of it. Um, But of course, real government agencies have sort of a cadre of different capabilities, not just what you can see with 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 sort of visible imagery, also what you can detect in other ways from space on the ground as well as your spies that are in the country picking up information, uh, listening to people's conversation on their communication devices, what I mean, you know the amount of data that comes together in intelligence collection is just unbelievable. policy wise, I think it's more tricky. I mean, the force structure is one we can see it, we can monitor, it, it takes some time to build it. How China plans to use its nuclear weapons and the nuances in that kind of conversation is perhaps more tricky to get to with intelligence. And the Chinese also have a great challenge in getting to our plans for how we plan to use our nuclear weapons if it comes to it. So, So that is an area of intelligence where I think it's much more challenging to get the kind of information you would like to see.
0: Any obvious gaps in our intelligence?
3: You know, if, if there's any way we could, you know, get to more of what are the buttons we need to press uh, with the Chinese to, to get them engaged, to get them interested on this. I'm sure there are theories, there are intelligence theories about it, and people say things from time to time, but that seems to be the big challenge for us. Uh, and also trying to figure out how to move forward with this challenge in a constructive way so it doesn't just become another you know chest-thumping exercise. What does it signify that you were able to use commercially
0: available satellite imagery?
3: This is possible now for any fool with a laptop to go and see these satellite photos and and try to make sense of them. Uh, Just 10, 15 years ago, you you needed to have top secret clearance to be able to see images like this. We've seen this enormous explosion in, in commercial satellite imagery, making this available not just to researchers like us, but to scientists that monitor all sorts of things around the planet, even crisis management, humanitarian issues, you name it. This is sort of a, this is an unbelievable development. And it also challenges how our intelligence community manages secrets. We had to discover this. We and another group had to discover these things before it was possible to poke a hole in what officials could say about the nature of China's modernization. You know, we heard warnings, oh, the numbers are increasing. We project them in a decade, then da-da-da. But they couldn't say, what is it that you're seeing? Because that was supposed to be secret. Now we know. You know, these things have been opened up to some extent. Now we can have a conversation with you as intelligence officials and defense officials in a different way than than was the situation was before.
0: That was Hans Christensen, director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. The first site, by the way, was discovered by researchers at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies in Monterey Both finds examples of just how much information can be gleaned from open sources. Remember, you can find a lot more great material on Substack. Look for Spy Talk there. And stay tuned because coming up, an interview on North Korea and what we know about what's happening inside the hermit kingdom.
1: Robert Manning has been watching North Korea in and out of government for both Democratic and Republican administrations for more than three decades. He's now a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. This week, I asked him what U.S. intelligence knows and what it finds hard to know about what's going on inside North Korea. Robert Manning, welcome to Spy Talk. You've been following North Korea for decades now. Is it the hardest target for U.S. intelligence, virtually impenetrable?
2: Well, yeah, as you say, I've been following it for more than three decades in and out of government. And I have to say it's probably the hardest of hard targets because there's no other country that's that insular, that is so hermetically sealed. You look at places like Iran or Iraq or China, they're very porous. There's a lot of
1: international visits. Yeah.
2: And so on. And, and certainly since for the past 18 months or so, Kim Jong-un has imposed his own sanctions that are much more effective than the UN's, completely sealing off the borders, cutting trade with China, evaporated down 95%. He won't let people in or out. He's rejected that. Va- he rejected vaccines, which I think may be changing. But he rejected both one U.S. one and, and, the, and the Chinese one. He's banned K-pop Korean right. music.
1: He's just dropped the curtain.
2: Which is odd because in 2018, when they had the sum- first summits with the Moon administration in South Korea, they invited K-pop groups to play at the summit, mm-hmm. and so it shows you how how far it's degenerated that he's mm-hmm. become so much more paranoid. I mean, he's, he's lecturing women about how to wear their hair, what mm-hmm. clothes they
1: chief stylist.
2: So uh, I mean, it, he's so paranoid about foreign influence, mm-hmm. which makes you think. And again, to show you what a black hole it is, I can think of many instances over the past thirty five years when there were predictions of the, the regime collapse. Right. And so I, I'm very resistant to that now, although I think they're in a deep in deep morass economically and there's some political ga- things mm-hmm. going on, mm-hmm. I think related to his health. You don't need intelligence to see a green bandage and then a green blotch on the back of his neck. Mm-hmm. And the right. fact that he looked he's 40 pounds lighter. Of course, uh, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Of course, your main interest in this is weapons, particularly nuclear weapons and his missiles. So, Bob, getting someone close to that, someone who can penetrate that weapons program is almost impossible. Right. I mean, for example, recruiting a North Korean missile engineer or administrator or a nuclear scientist, that's virtually impossible. Right.
2: Well, we've gotten pretty good at dealing with their their. And, you know, not getting knowledge of their overseas networks. We've stopped ships in various, at various points. As Yogi Berra said, you can observe a lot just by watching. And <laughs> we do have some pretty good mm-hmm. spot eyes in the sky. But in terms of human intelligence, there's only the rare
1: defection that we hear about from North Korea. And of course, we don't hear about anyone defecting in place and spying for us or South Korea.
2: No, and there's an additional problem because it's so hierarchical the regime. It's literally all in the family, mm-hmm. even though he kills kept some of them on occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to get somebody that actually has a has a has a finger on the pulse of what's going on inside North Korea is really really difficult.
1: Yes, so we rely predominantly on electronic means: spy satellites, electronic intercepts of their communications, and so on. How good is our satellite coverage? I've, I've heard from time to time, it really takes quite a while for us to find some new development in the weapons program or in the missile programs through spy satellites. Do we have a satellite just dedicated to North Korea?
2: I'm not sure about dedicated North Korea, but I think they're focused a fair amount of time. And even civilian satellites have identified a lot of Things going on, activity in nuclear mm-hmm. facilities, mm-hmm. and so on. So I, I think we're 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 pretty good at that. Although, you know, the, don't forget they are the world's champion tunnelers. They've got stuff dug into mountains and so on. That mm-hmm. uh, it, some of it is just we know they have nuclear weapons. I'm not sure we don't really know exactly how many because of that, their their skills at deception.
1: So is it fair to say that? If there's anything going on above ground, our satellites are going to detect it pretty quickly.
2: I think anything of strategic significance, we will know about it. Mm -hmm. Yes.
1: But the problem is stuff that is not going on above ground. What's in the minds of Kim Jong-un and the people around him. Maybe there's some secret, super secret spy inside the leadership, but that's highly unlikely, according to everyone I've talked to through the years.
2: Yes, uh, we, you know we work pretty closely with the Korean National Intelligence Service in Seoul, and they have they have some pretty good on the ground capabilities. But again, as I say, that to penetrate the leadership circle and try to get a sense of what what they're doing and what they're planning, mostly I think this has gone on for so long. We're talking about seventy plus years since the end of the Korean War that we. We become very familiar with the patterns in the North Korea playbook, and can most of the time see things coming. you know, it's no accident that they keep testing missiles on Thanksgiving or July 4th. they, they know what they're doing. -hmm.:
1: Do you have any feeling, Robert Manning, on how good our electronic penetration is? As, as we've learned lately from revelations about the Israeli technological spying company, NSO Group. We can light up somebody's phone without them even using it. We can penetrate their computers, find out everybody else they've been in touch with. Do you have any feeling that we're pretty good at that? And and how careful, by the way, are the North Koreans in protecting their communications, do you think?
2: They're pretty good. But, uh, uh, you know, and again, I've been out of government for a number of years now, so I'm not up to date. But my sense is, that we have pretty good electronic capabilities. As the as you said, the NSO incidents show the kind of capabilities that exist uh, at present.
1: Do we know, by the way, whether Kim Jong-un uses an iPhone or some other kind of cell phone? I,
2: I don't know. I mean, we had a sense when he, before he killed his brother who lived in Macau, We had some lines. I I think there were some lines maybe into him.
1: So, Kim Jong un's relatives and distant family members may be accessible electronically or by other means. I'm remembering now a memoir by a former senior CIA official a few years ago who talked about approaching North Korean diplomats in their remote missions in Africa where they have a diplomatic presence. And he said they were accessible because they were lonely and sad. And even that some of the young men, Had a craving for pornography, and that was one way he was able to establish some relationships. Do you have any feelings for whether our recruitment efforts against North Koreans outside of the country are successful or not?
2: Well, again, I was I was on the analyst side, not the collection side, but there's probably some of that. But, you know, how valuable is it? You know, we've had very few significant like uh, there was a deputy chief of mission in, in their London embassy defected. And that mm-hmm. gave us a lot of information about mm-hmm. what, uh, the go, how it actually works. But there are not very many at that level with that kind of information. The most you get from, say, somebody in Africa is sort of how, what the MO is, how they operate, mm-hmm. and some of the overseas network procurement networks mm-hmm. for everything from missile parts to Corvassier for Kim.
1: And, and they are really good at these black market activities, aren't they? <laughs>
2: Uh, they're very skillful. I mean, it's amazing what they've done. They, for years, they were selling phony Marlboros, all, all sorts of drugs, both the legitimate and. Mm-hmm. and the meth is one of their big money makers, or has uh-huh. been. Viagra. They they had Viagra. If you saw the package, you wouldn't know it was it was phony.
1: Do you know of their relationship with the Chinese and Russian intelligence services?
2: I really don't. I know that, that there's a lot of disdain in in China for them, and uh, I, I really not, I have no idea what it is. But I know there's a great a great amount of distrust on both ends. Korea, you know, China over the last thousand years has invaded Korea several mm-hmm. dozen dozens of times. So there's an instinctive. It's not as strong as Japan anti Japan, but there's a this it very distinctive in both Korea's reticence about China. hmm hmm
1: I suspect we'll have to rely pretty much on our South Korean allies for recruiting human agents spies.:
2: They're helpful, yes. no question. It sounds Although like they have you're their hedging. own agenda. It sounds well, like they have hedging. their own agenda, and sometimes, sometimes it's hard to sort out. Where do we diverge in terms of our agendas? Well, you've seen it in recent days. You know, they they the South Koreans have put out, well, Kim, Kim wants to have a meeting and so on. We have communications, we don't know what they are. But I, I think you don't need intelligence to know that there's no, as far as we can see, there's no political will for a credible deal mm-hmm. with North Korea, uh, mm-hmm. waiting for some initiative from the Biden administration. Although some may think so and keep writing these op-eds. Yeah. But I think Biden's got it about right.
1: You know, the old saw about one definition of sanity being trying to do the same thing again and again, hoping for different results, but you keep doing it. Would you characterize the goal of having North Korea denuclearize as one of those cases of insanity? I mean, why would they give up their nuclear weapons and missiles?
2: It's helpful to try to put yourself in in the other guy's shoes. And if I'm Kim Jong Un, I guess the question would be, why would I trust the Amer- United States more than my nukes to provide security? Mm-hmm. You know, when it, when, when people here talk about regime change and or even pushing on on uh, human rights, which we should do, but nonetheless, when you say human rights, Kim Jong Un sees regime, hears regime change, mm-hmm. and so. There's seventy plus years of accumulated deep distrust on both sides. It's very mm-hmm. very hard to undo that, and I think we've had to try. I think in the six party talks we got very close. I was involved in that when I was in the State Department, and mm-hmm.
1: and that was uh, in the nineteen nineties.
2: And we they were offered everything anybody could possibly imagine, mm-hmm. and it broke down as everything has over transparency. They would not. Agreed IA inspections, you know, they've never been willing to put out a declaration of uh, a credible declaration of their, what their nuclear weapons program is.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
2: you can't denuclearize what you don't know. Yeah. Right. And it's the same with lesser deals of arms control. If you're going to have a nuclear freeze, you still need to know what you're freezing. Yeah. Right. And so so it's it's pretty difficult.
1: So unofficially. Robert Manning, is is our tactic to basically say, okay, we accept that you have these nukes and that you're not going to let them go and we can live with that. But we want to know what's going on, that all you have to do to satisfy us is to give us access and we can live with that.
2: I don't think we said that. I think one of the reasons for U.N. sanctions is is to not legitimize their nuclear arsenal and to hold out the prospect of sooner or later trying to get at it but i don't think there's much i think as a, as a matter of policy you know that makes sense to have, to try to mobilize world opprobrium for them but nonetheless the, the reality on the ground is if you're if you have a north korea policy you have to assume they got nukes and they can hit you with them and so we've had for many years a kind of mutual deterrence nobody likes to say that here but that's the reality
1: mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yeah, and there's been some scenarios suggested where they would do a quick strike on Seoul and take it out, and then sit back and wait for the U.S. to react and say, "Hey, do you want to trade Washington for Seoul?"
2: I think if the, you look over the the Kim family dynasty over the since 1953 or 1950, the one thing, the one constant strain is that they're, they're about regime survival, and they know if we wanted to to take them out, we could do so. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And if they if they use nuclear weapons, I think the wrath of the United States would would be on them very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, So and in that sense, deterrence works. I think it's more complicated now because they're developing a very much more sophisticated nuclear capability. They're trying to build SLBMs. They have mobile missiles, which they can hide in tunnels and move around. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's harder. And we have we need we have to rethink what we need to have to to ensure that. But
1: mm-hmm. but
2: basically the, the fundamentals, as far as, you know, that's the problem with deterrence is it works until it doesn't. And uh, but so far, I don't see any any indication that, it does, that it's mm-hmm. not working. Mm-hmm. And, and
1: is it fair to say, you know, that they can't just push a button and carry out a first strike that we're going to have some warning, at least some time? If they decide to take the swords out of their sheaths and try a first strike on South Korea or even us, however improbable.
2: Yes, I would. I, I don't see a bolt in the blue. I think it would be in a period of tensions and we'd see we'd, mm-hmm. begin, we'd be seeing some signs up there that there was moving in this direction.
1: Mm-hmm. That will give us ample warning to uh, warn them to stop or they're going to face massive retaliation.
2: Well, ironically, it's sort of some of both. In other words, they could, the regime could collapse tomorrow or they could go on for another 20 years. And we probably won't have a lot of great warning when that happens. But on the other hand, a lot of their behavior is very predictable. There's a North Korean playbook, both for diplomacy and their missile and, their missile and nuclear tests. They're pretty consistent. So it's, it's a bit of both.
1: And we're not likely to see a regime change anytime soon. All those predictions have come to naught. So I wouldn't take that bet.
2: Uh, Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take that bet.
1: Robert Manning, thanks for joining us on Spy Talk. Robert Manning has been a longtime observer of North Korea for decades in government and at the Atlanta Council, where he is a senior fellow. It's been great to have you here, Robert. Talk to you again soon. That's longtime Korea watcher Robert Manning. It's a subject we'll come back to again and again. Gene,
0: Thanks, Jeff. And thanks to all of you for joining us again for another episode of the Spy Talk podcast.
1: Great to have you here. See you next week.
0: For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.